Witnesses tell Congress the United States should take a page from Ukraine's military book as it looks to quickly deploy and scale commercial drones. Otherwise, they say the Defense Department's replicator program could miss the mark. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric attended the House Armed Services Subcommittee hearing. She joins me with the details. And Kirsten, let's start with the replicator program itself, announced a couple of months ago with a lot of fanfare. Just review for us what that exactly is. Yeah, so it was announced in August, and it's a Defense Department initiative that wants to field cheap commercial drones at scale in the thousands in multiple domains within the next 18 to 24 months. And it's designed to serve as an innovative playbook for the Defense Department. It will use existing funding, programming lines, authorities to increase production and scale delivery of these drones. And I guess this is important as more and more drones are deployed. You can't have a one drone per one person type of operator model. They need these things to work together as a quote-unquote team so one person can control a bunch of them. Is that the basic idea? That's the idea, and the kind of thought is that if there's a lot of drones, it could deter just from a, a size standpoint. And, you know, during the hearing, they were talking about that they were primarily focusing on deterring China from Taiwan particularly but basically using um, a lot of small, smart, and cheap platforms to kind of counteract this. Yes, there's strength in numbers sometimes of small, cheap things as opposed to a bomber you can only afford 25 of or something, I guess. Yeah, and then they were saying that, you know, if they lose a drone, it gets hit, that if it's cheap, it doesn't matter. Yeah, they're sort of like somewhere between a bullet and a bomber, I guess you could put it. (laughs) And who were some of the witnesses and what did they specifically tell? This was the House Armed Services Subcommittee. Who were they and what did they say? Yeah, one witness was Bill Greenwald. He's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he was saying that the program should be taken out of acquisition and budget bureaucracy and rules and that it should also use other transaction authorities. Another witness was Brian Clark. He's a fellow at the Hudson Institute. And And he's been a guest on this show several times. Yep. Very nice. He was saying that the replicator program should focus on adaptability and operational innovation, not size, or as DOD was calling it, mass. So we can't just rely on mass alone. Replicator, especially in its first instantiation, which they call Replicator 1, should be aimed at something other than mass. It should be aimed at enabling operational innovation. The witnesses were really concerned about funding coming from other important programs like munitions and the implications that that could have for the department as it's trying to work on Sure. When they announced Replicator, they said they would just find the money within DOD to do that. So that must have gotten people's ears pricked. Like, where is that money going to come from when we're scrounging around for ammo? Yeah, the congressional members also were pointing out that a lot as a concern of theirs. And questions came up about the pace and whether they can deploy this thing quickly, correct? Yeah. The um, subcommittee leader, Mike Gallagher, was really concerned about timing, The other witnesses also mentioned that the replicator needs to pick up the pace to innovate and accomplish its goals. And they were one witness was saying that it needed to be agile and deploy quickly. And they pointed to Ukraine as an example of why this is important. Yes, Ukraine has had good luck with their drones or good skill with them. What did the witnesses say are the lessons there for the U.S. military? Kind of an odd reversal. (laughs) 
The first was speed. So they were saying Ukraine deployed commercial drones quickly, which the U.S. will also need to do to accomplish its goals. Bill Greenwald said that the U.S. should be agile and acquire agile like Ukraine. Brian Clark pointed to how Ukraine is organizing itself to deploy drones in a flexible way, which he said would be important for the U.S. to do as well. Well, I'd say one thing right off the bat is Ukraine's been able to do what they're doing, not through necessarily just mass and throwing a lot of unmanned systems at the Russians, but instead it's how they orchestrate, how they uh, organize themselves, how they use the tactics that the unmanned systems enable, how they employ those tactics in in the field, how they basically sequence their operations. So it's a lot of the kind of operational art is what they're bringing to bear that's actually yielding success rather than just throwing a bunch of you know, mass at the wall and, and hoping that the Russians get overwhelmed. So I think the lesson there is we've got to figure out ways to enable our unmanned systems to be employed in a very flexible way that tactical operators can then adjust in the field. And Paul Schar from the Center for New American Security said that Ukraine has been successful with its decentralized acquisition approach, which he said could be beneficial for the U.S. to also use. One of the things that we've seen from an acquisition standpoint, Ukraine do very successfully, is they have a very decentralized approach. They have civilians, you know, sort of like spontaneously working, drone operators, working with industry, working with the military. Um, there's downsides to that. They have a very heterogeneous fleet. So, you know, things like maintenance is hard. But if you're losing them at high volumes and you're focused on replenishing, that's fine. And one of the advantages of what they're doing is um, not only can they then scale through that direction, but they do a lot of experimentation in the technology and then how it's being used um, because they're allowing a lot of freedom among those on the front lines and the developers to try things and figure out what works. And for members of Congress, besides the money, which they should worry about and always do worry about, what were their concerns? Yeah. Also, in addition to timeline, they were talking about that the replicator program and DOD would need to work with the industrial base that for the industrial base that there hasn't been a lot of effort to produce and develop drones in the U.S. and that these parts might be coming from other countries. So they were saying that if DOD wants this to be produced in the U.S., that they would kind of need to show the industrial base that there's you know incentive to produce this here. Yeah, there's a lot being produced in China. The first time I saw a toy drone, not a toy, it flew, I guess it was a drone, an inexpensive drone in 7-Eleven. I said, this is how we know these things are coming from China. If they're cheap enough to sell in 7-Eleven, you could sure throw a lot of them at the enemy, but they're made in China. And what else? The Democratic representative, Seth Moulton from Massachusetts, said that comparing the replicator program to Ukraine and what Ukraine has done for its drones should be one metric to determine replicator success, as well as, you know, timeline funding, how quickly it's deploying everything. If Ukraine's GDP is one one one-hundredth of ours, then we should be a hundred times faster. But be that as it may, let's at least just compare one-to-one how we're doing in terms of speed. I think that would be a great metric for how successful this program is. Was the sense of the hearing at the conclusion that Congress is behind this idea? They just want more detail? They want more detail, and the subcommittee leaders want Defense Department leadership to testify on the program. All right, so they are on notice. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric. thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our 
work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils, that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.